Well, hi everyone. I'm Lisa Stearns and I'm here with Dr. Tim Cross, our Senior Vice President, and welcome to this week's Fireside Chat. It's the first one in July and we hope everybody has been having a great month so far and staying as safe as possible. We'll be addressing um, some new information today about the university's plans to reopen and how we can continue to implement safety measures. But first, we all know the drill. First of all, keep your audio muted. Um, you can use the chat function to ask a question publicly, or you can send it to me privately in the chat as well. And of course, this session will be recorded and is being recorded so that anyone who was unable to join us today can, can view it later. So, Tim, we will jump right in. The number of new positive cases has unfortunately jumped from about 600 um, a day average to 1,200 a day average in this state, which is, of course, a cause for concern. Um, what is your take on this? Thanks for uh, kicking us off once again, Lisa, and, and thanks for that question and sort of setting the stage for this afternoon's discussion. Welcome, everyone. Good to see uh, each of you again, uh, virtually at least. Uh, I have to say I missed last week uh, not connecting with everyone, but I hope everyone had a, a great holiday weekend, great time with family and friends. Great but safe, right? So, uh, you know, all things in moderation right now, but uh, thanks for joining us today. Well, as, as Lisa just mentioned, gosh, uh, you know, you can't help but see the news and, and scratch your head and wonder where we're headed, uh, you know, locally, statewide, uh, and across the nation. Uh, certainly, uh, we, we know one thing's for certain, summer is not going to lead to the virus subsiding. Uh, in fact, uh, we're, we're seeing increased uh, positive cases. So, we're getting some information that, you know, in the spring, we weren't sure what, what would happen. Well, we're, we're starting to experience now that uh, the virus is not going away, certainly anytime soon. Hospitalization rates have started to increase as well. And we're hearing some troubling news in some states about uh, uh, some pretty significant increases in death rates. So uh, none of that is, is, again, in any way positive. And it's certainly uh, something that we got to keep our eyes on, be attentive to. Uh, and, and pay close uh, uh, attention in terms of how that, that influences our guidance. Most states actually right now are experiencing increases in rates. And as I looked yesterday, I haven't checked today, but as of yesterday, there were only two states in the country where the number of cases were decreasing. If you happen to be uh, curious about where they were, it's New Hampshire and Vermont. So uh, maybe the place to go right now is the Northeast uh, because they seem to have a little better handle on things maybe than, than the rest of the country at this point. But clearly in most cases, the number of cases are either stable or increasing. And, and in Tennessee, we are seeing some increases in cases. You know, the main thing that says to me is, gosh, we can't, can't begin to be lax. Uh, we can't start to, to uh, step back from those things that we've been saying all along we have to do. And in fact, we better redouble our efforts. Uh, doing the really basic, simple things, washing our hands, staying distant, wearing masks, uh, not coming to work if we feel sick, uh, reporting if we've been in contact with someone else that, that has been uh, diagnosed positive. Those are really the things we've got to continue to commit to doing uh, in light of uh, what we're seeing uh, in terms of positive COVID cases. So Governor Lee has extended executive orders 36 and 38 all the way to August 29th. 
So what are the implications um, of that move for the Institute and for the university? Yeah, good question. I, I've gotten several questions about this and, and the extension of those executive orders uh, occurred just before the end of May. So let's you know, just take a pause and think about what that means. So executive orders 36 and 38 basically established the parameters that we were working under uh, for late April and all of the month of May. And it basically created scenarios where uh, public boards were allowed to operate through electronic means like Zoom. Uh, it established the ability for our healthcare providers to, to offer telehealth to all uh, patients. And, and for us, it, it did things like establish that meetings and events could be held with no more than 50 people. Uh, so that's, that's what was in uh, Executive Orders 36 and 38. What, what the governor announced then uh, at the end of May was that instead those orders expiring on May 31st, as, as had been originally intended, they were extended to, to go beyond May 31st and now to be effective until August 29th. So it wasn't in some sense a new executive order. Well, it wasn't just to do the extension, but what it really did was to say, we're going to continue doing what we've been doing and we're going to continue it now uh, through the end of August. So some interpreted it to mean we were going backwards uh, or going back to a more of a stay-at-home uh, approach, but in fact that that wasn't uh, the purpose or the intention of that extension. It was rather to to adopt those uh, CDC practices and guidance uh, that we had been uh, operating under uh, throughout the month of May and a little bit of April as well. So hopefully that that provides a little bit of clarification on, on that action and uh, what that means for us and basically it means you know, we'll continue on under the, the current set of guidance uh, that we have in place as well. So the current plans right now are to begin preparing um, the Knoxville campus for students to return in August. So does this timeline still hold? And again, what are the implications for the Institute? You know, I, honestly, I've been thinking all week about this. Uh, how, how can I get on here and tell you uh, cases are going up, hospitalization rates are going up, death rates are a concern, but good news, we're bringing 29,000 students back to campus. You know, it seems like that's a really hard message to, uh, to synthesize and, and make it make sense. So here's, here's my best shot at it. Uh, and honestly, I think we can do it. So don't, don't take this as skepticism on my part, but I know the optics here don't, don't seem to go together real well. Uh, at this point, we're still, you know, three to four weeks out from students returning. And if we don't plan for them to come back, they can't come back. So that part's pretty clear. So if our goal, and it is our goal, that we would have students uh, able to return to campus, able to uh, participate in at least some face-to-face -face courses, then we've got to continue to plan for that. We can't suspend what we're doing, even, even as we see what's happening right now in terms of cases. With all that said, that doesn't mean that when we get, you know, two, three, four days out that we can't change our minds and say, gosh, you know, things are even worse. Uh, they're unbearable. We can't possibly do this. But if we, if we don't continue to plan that way, uh, we're really going to be uh, challenged to ever uh, welcome students back this fall. So the, the strategy is uh, we're, we'll continue to plan uh, towards that. That's our goal. That's that's the uh, a focus that we have, but we're going to do so with every uh, 
every bit of attention we can possibly have to safety and health and and following the practices again some of which we just talked about we're modifying classrooms we're uh, erecting signage uh, across campus uh, we're, we're uh, making sure there's personal protective equipment wherever it's needed and so forth so we're going to i think great lengths to be sure what we're planning for is is safe uh, for those students and importantly for our faculty and staff as well. Now, having said all that, uh, let's also think about what that means for the rest of the Institute, because I know what happens in Knoxville doesn't necessarily have to be mirrored or have to take place exactly the same way across the state. However, uh, if, if we're going to be returning students to campus, I think logically that means we've got to think about having our offices open and available. And if they're open and available for our academic programs, uh, don't we also want to support our research and extension program? So I guess long story short, uh, what I'm saying is we, we're going to continue to move towards and plan for uh, uh, an increased amount of uh, office openings uh, on or about the 1st of August. And, and that will be with the goal of keeping everyone safe, but also with the goal of serving students uh, as, as they return to campus. And then we'll, we'll want to make sure uh, we figure out the best means then to also um, mirror that uh, in our extension and research offices off campus as well, uh, so that we're not totally out of sync uh, with one another. So hopefully that gives a little bit of an overview about why we're planning for students to come back and how we're going about approaching that. And I will interject because um, we actually had a question related to that. and I'll go ahead and ask it now. Um, and that, the question was, do we know how many students truly will be back on campus and allowed back on campus? This will be the first uh, year where we've welcomed students back to campus in the midst of a pandemic. So we don't have a lot of historical basis, but uh, as of uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, enrollment was up, uh, not down. And that's counter to what a lot of universities are experiencing. I think that's a positive sign, honestly. I think it's a a bit of a statement that folks have seen and heard about the practices we plan to follow, the procedures we plan to follow, and, and clearly they're indicating they're, they're comfortable returning. They're, they're, in many cases, demanding to return. Uh, so I, I think uh, that's the intention. Now, the intentions to return and who actually shows up on campus may be two different things, but right now we're looking at, you know, basically a, a full enrollment, a full level of, of students returning uh, at this point. And we'll see as we get actually into August and, and what those numbers look like. So we're in phase two right now and we haven't moved to phase three yet. But part of the purpose of phase two is to prepare for phase three. So is that is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And I think that's, you know, the phases I think worked really well for us initially in terms of describing and envisioning how we were going to move through this uh, crisis. You know, as, as we've gained more experience, as, as we've had uh, more time pass, you know, I, I would say our very well-defined specific phases are, are getting more and more vague and ambiguous to some extent. And I don't think that's surprising. You know, we, we developed a plan in advance of something we'd never experienced before. And then as we're moving through this plan now, I think we're finding that we, we uh, are making having to adapt and change just a little bit. Uh, so we still, I think, like the, the notion of 
making changes in our overall staffing and our overall programming in phases. That part hasn't changed, but the specificity of exactly what changes on exactly one date, I think we're, we're realizing we have to be a little bit more fluid, a little more flexible than, than what we had uh, put down on paper several months ago. So with all that said, uh, we, we do consider ourselves still to be in phase two, but with more and more uh, emphasis in actions towards uh, re-entry and reopening of offices, uh, again, starting around the 1st of August. And, and when I say that, what, what I really mean is that that doesn't mean all hands back on deck and every soul reporting back in. What it really refers to is we, we want our offices to be open, uh, but we want them to be safe. And that may mean we have staggered staffing in order to uh, have someone there and available uh, each day. It may be that we rotate people, rotate uh, times throughout the day. I mean, it's still not a matter of everyone returning. I th still think uh, a good number of our folks need to continue to work remote when they can. And that's where it becomes really hard to describe, well, who has to come back specifically? Uh, and we're going to have to work with our supervisors, our, our directors, our department heads uh, to, to really determine uh, unit by unit, office by office, uh, how are we going to approach this? How are we going to do it uh, in a safe manner, but also in a manner that we continue to uh, provide essential services to students, to researchers, to uh, extension uh, programs and so forth uh, as necessary. So uh, that that's, again, really the the uh, philosophy that's driving us at this point, more so perhaps than saying phase three looks just like this. Uh, we're really realizing we've got to, to customize this, if you will, uh, to each office to be sure we're able to provide those essential services. So I know ambiguity and, and generalities <laughs> are really hard to deal with, really hard to work with. Uh, we want to uh, work with our supervisors to in turn work with each of our employees to figure out what does this mean for me? Am I supposed to come back? Is it okay if I work at home? Uh, we, we're just gonna have to work that through person by person. I don't feel like sitting here in Morgan Hall, I can make that decision for each of you. Uh, we've, we've got to work together through our supervisory chain uh, to get that done. And what about the um, flu vaccine requirement? Um, did you want to say a few words about that? No. <laughs> okay, well, we'll move on. <laughs> no, I, I do want to speak about that. So there's another one I've had quite a little bit of contact uh, about uh, in, in sort of all over the board, too. So uh, the board trustees uh, adopted or, or uh, endorsed a set of directives for the University of Tennessee system, not just for any one campus, but for the system, that included a requirement that all students, faculty, and staff would get a flu vaccination this fall. The concept behind that is that a lot of the flu symptoms can, can look like uh, COVID-19 uh, symptoms. And if we get vaccinated and it's an effective vaccine for the flu, then we've got a, you know, a little more confidence that if someone's exhibiting some symptoms, it, it's more likely that uh, that it's going to be COVID-19 and we can take the proper steps. Uh, so the, the whole idea is for surveillance uh, to be improved because we don't want the flu masking uh, COVID-19 systems, if you will. So again, in concept, that seems to make good scientific or medical sense to me. 
but I recognize there are individuals who aren't very excited about uh, a flu vaccination for one reason or another. So in, in the directive, it specifically says uh, we want everyone to get the vaccine except for those who have medical conditions that would prevent it or except for those who have religious reasons why they would be opposed uh, to such a vaccine. So there are exceptions available uh, under those circumstances and we're certainly going to work with individuals uh, to be sure that we're, we're you know, consistent with their health and faith-based needs uh, as we do this. We would expect uh, that, that it would be handled at the local level. In other words, working with your own health provider or your own community uh, in terms of uh, obtaining those flu uh, shots when they're available. And uh, beyond that, we don't have additional details just yet because it's, it's been a very recent development. So that's the, the concept and, and that's the way we'll approach it. By the way, let, let me just also say whether you're for or against it, I, I'm not gonna change your mind and that's not my, my intention here, but most, uh, most everyone in the medical profession, this is a requirement they've, they've uh, lived with and operated under for decades. So uh, it's not an uncommon uh, requirement, uh, again, for health professionals. Uh, we just feel like in the interest of, of uh, uh, doing everything we can to keep everyone healthy, uh, it makes, makes good sense to adopt this practice this year. Someone has asked if the vaccine requirement uh, does include extension staff, staff or just those on the Knoxville campus. Now this would be anyone who's getting a paycheck from the University of Tennessee and anyone who's a student at any University of Tennessee campus. Okay. Well, we have had a few questions come in, so we'll just jump right into those. Um, the first question, this actually came from a couple of people. Uh, they were saying that in, on June 19th, um, the UT Advocacy Newsletter said the state has appropriated $50 million for state employee buyouts. And so the question is, is if we are a state employee, should we have access to this retirement buyout? So I can approach that question from two perspectives. Uh, one perspective is, do we have access to it? <laughs> and the answer is no, it did not include higher education. The other perspective is, should we have access to it? And you know, that's a decision that's made by our elected officials. So uh, we really don't control that. They, they chose to offer it to state agencies. But let me also make sure you remember that uh, state agencies in terms of their annual budget, were presented with uh, a requirement for a 12% reduction. And in higher ed, our reduction was zero. So if that's the case, I'd much rather have a zero reduction than I would an opportunity for a buyout and a 12% reduction uh, that really negatively impacts our programs and our faculty and staff and students. So uh, we're not eligible, but, but we also don't, don't have that 12% budget reduction to deal with. Okay. You may or may not uh, know the answer to this, but someone did ask about, back to the flu vaccine, about TSU. Are they making the same requirement? Obviously, with their extension offices uh, co-op to some degree. So, well, That's a great question, one I hadn't thought about. Uh, the, the directives and the requirement are only University of Tennessee at this point. Uh, I think that's a, a good question for us to uh, maybe discuss with Tennessee State University administration, see if they have considered that and whether, whether they have a, a position on it or not. Um, so I, I don't know that we can go any further than that. We can't dictate 
their personnel policies, but uh, I think we would probably, if, if we think it's good for us, we, we would think it'd be good for our clientele and, and for our partners and, and those we work with as well. Okay. So another question, um, and this is again coming from uh, Extension. What is the current protocol for county Extension Office employees to return to work? Uh, this person says they are aware of the phases, but have these changed and what are the details of the alternative plan? Great. First of all, let me remind you uh, that um, you can find this in writing and uh, I'll, I'm going to see if I can be smart enough to share my screen. Bear with me just one moment here. I thought I had it up. This is a way of killing time and not having to answer hard questions. <laughs> All right, so uh, hopefully you're seeing that. If you go, you can get to it a couple different ways. I'll get to it from the extension page and go to the uh, COVID-19 response plan and then pull up the off-campus faculty and staff plan scroll down just a little bit this will make everybody uh, seasick all right talks about the phased approach and then right here oops describes i don't know why i'm highlighting all of that describes an ultimate ultimate phase and as i talked about a little earlier uh you know again a couple of months ago we we very explicitly and and directly described phased approach well in advance of any of those phases actually occurring and i think again what we've discovered is we we weren't too far off in that approach but it was really hard to be so prescriptive in advance without any any experience uh extension leadership and i think dr sensman may be on may wish to comment as well uh they they thought that we really needed this uh alternative phase to be able to work with in some locations that recognized we weren't going to move from phase one to phase two or from phase two to phase three and yet there were needs and opportunities for uh, an expansion of the office uh, presence uh, of staff in the office and and that it seemed to be even though the the numbers didn't justify it uh, there were reasons that that really moving forward uh, slightly further was not going to be do, uh, jeopardizing health or safety. So this alternative phase was added that showed the option of, of expanding the staff slightly in the office, being open to the public by appointment, uh, and doing that uh, in cooperation or under the, the direction of the county director and certainly our regional directors uh, could be involved in that as well. So that that's uh, in that document, and, and I'm not going to read it word for word, but hopefully that, that will help uh, in uh, our extension employees understanding uh, where we're at and what uh, what the alternative uh, approach may be uh, in their county. So maybe there'll be some follow-up questions on that. Let me pause right there and, and I'll uh, stop sharing. Uh, Dr. Sensiman's on. Maybe we can ask him if he has had uh, or if he would like to make uh, any further comments about that. Scott? Yes, sir. Thanks, Dr. Cross. Uh, I just looked at the site uh, to see how the counties are breaking out as far as using the various phases. And uh, 
it looks like uh, based on what we've applied there, we've got, I think, over 20 different counties in the state right now, maybe actually the high 20s that have gone into the alternate phase. We can obviously go back into phase zero. What we really thought could happen, it was really with our regional directors helping us work through this, is that we have some flexibility in trying to get some staff in the office to get really geared up to do some things that are planned for a month from now. And that really allows us then to not just have one individual in the office, also allows us to reach out to the clientele a little bit uh, by appointment. And so we can control the number of individuals coming in and out of that office. So that's essentially what we tried to do with, with that approach. And uh, it looks like for right now, that's being used fairly extensively, just even after we moved into that phase in several counties. Again, we can always go back to another uh, lower level if we need to. Great, thank you very much, Dr. Sensman. Great. Um, this question is regarding uh, the cleaning, um, particularly of buildings outside of Knoxville. So for instance, in the um, Ag Research Centers and Extension offices, the question is, is that you know, if we open up the buildings, um, it's really going to be stressful for the staff to have to be deep cleaning and sanitizing um, these restrooms. And is, are there any plans for, for support in that way? You know, I think that's where, again, we've got to work uh, case by case on that. If there's a need for additional support, a need for additional resources, we need to be made aware of it. And when I say we, I mean our leadership team. Uh, because it's, it's really hard, again, from, from one central location to anticipate where the challenges or the, the barriers or obstacles might be. So uh, I'll, I'll make sure I, I state what our priority is, and that is that we do that deep cleaning, that we do provide that sanitation. And then I'll, I'll ask our, our rec directors, our regional directors, our county directors to be sure to let us know if, if we need supplies, if we need materials, if, if it's a matter of uh, figuring out how we can somehow get uh, some additional part-time help uh, in, in carrying out these sanitation practices. But if we don't know there's a need, it's gonna be awfully hard for us to respond. So uh, I'm giving you the, <laughs> the authority to reach out and contact us and, and let us know uh, so that we can do everything we can there to keep things safe and clean and healthy. Right. Um, so the flu, obviously, uh, vaccine has elicited quite a few questions. And um, this question is, uh, if you've never had the flu nor you've uh, ever had a flu shot, um, are you still required to take the shot? This person doesn't uh, want it to possibly cause an episode of the flu, whether full-blown or minute, to make that person more vulnerable to the flu in the future. Well, I'm afraid I don't have the medical background maybe to... <laughs> to speak to the, some of the dimensions of that, but uh, I think each year the vaccine is specific to the expected strains that, that they think will, will emerge that year. So having had a shot last year, I don't think has any bearing on, on your susceptibility this year, nor does having had the flu in a prior year, because again, the strains differ typically uh, year to year. Uh, so I, I don't think previous experience or previous vaccination really has any bearing on it, but even maybe more simplistically than that, the requirement doesn't reference anything other than everyone in the University of Tennessee system getting a flu vaccination this year, short of those who have medical 
or or religious uh, reasons that that uh, it would not make sense for them. So, but and I, let's make sure we don't you know have this cause even more anxiety during a time when we're already anxious and stressed. Uh, if, if there's really uh, health concerns, religious concerns, other concerns that an individual has, uh, we're, we're going to encourage you to speak with your supervisor and then eventually, if we need to uh, get our human resources department involved, try to work through those issues uh, and, and not cause this to be even more stress on top of uh, the load that each of you are carrying already. So we'll, we'll work through this. I'm confident we can do it in such a way that we don't, uh, again, uh, cause all of you to have even more concerns than you have already uh, when it comes to COVID-19. So Tim, do you know the logistics of how this uh, flu shot uh, vaccine requirement will be monitored as far as completion and or mandated? I don't yet. So, you know, we, it won't be offered certainly centrally because we're not going to make people drive all across the state to get a flu shot. Uh, so we, it will be through your own health provider, your own local community uh, agencies uh, as, as they're available. Cost would be covered by health insurance just as it has been in years past. So for faculty and staff, uh, I'm sure that will be the approach. As far as uh, uh, monitoring or you know, verification, that sort of thing. I don't have any details yet. Uh, we haven't uh, gotten that far. The vaccine is normally not even available for several months yet, so we've got a little bit of time to work that out. So we'll certainly keep everyone informed. And if we can, if there's a need and, and folks want it, uh, we could perhaps uh, uh, consider whether we could have some localized areas available specifically for uh, our, our research and extension staff to obtain these vaccinations. But for right now, we're thinking, you know, your local provider, your local uh, uh, drugstore, pharmacy, the, those areas are, are widely, typically widely available and, and very convenient. So uh, that's, that's what we would expect. So we have a question about international students. And is there any more information on these students uh, being required to go home and uh, not be able to stay here. Uh, what do you know about that at this point? Yeah, there was a federal rule came out recently that indicated uh, for international students, uh, if they were not taking at least six hours of face-to-face -face coursework, in other words, if, if their entire graduate degree program was being offered online, that they would be required to return to their home country with the, I think, um, logic that if it's online, they can take it from anywhere and that does not require being present in this country. So I'm not trying to defend, I'm, I'm really just sort of laying out there what I believe the, uh, the guidance was uh, from the federal level. Our, our interpretation of that, you know, is, is certainly that there are really uh, typically uh, graduate students involved in courses, if you will, they're enrolled in courses like thesis or dissertation hours, like special topics that are only offered face-to-face. -face. They're not offered online and our graduate students typically are, are uh, virtually always enrolled in, in some amount of hours of those types of courses. So we think that uh, whether that guidance stays in place or not, and I know there's already been a, a couple of universities file challenges uh, in court, uh, to overturn those requirements. 
I, I truly believe our graduate students uh, are, are not going to be in a position of only taking online courses anyway. So I don't think that will widely apply uh, in, in uh, at least our Herbert College or the College of Veterinary Medicine because they're, they're already enrolled in courses that are not uh, online only. So I'm happy to have some follow-up on that or if Let's see if uh, Tom Gill with us today. Tom, if you're on and want to add any more to that, you may have had some additional conversations through the uh, 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 International Center. I'm not sure that Tom was able to join us today. So always a risk to call on someone <laughs> when you don't know if they're here or not. Tom is out doing great work somewhere for someone. I know that. <laughs> there was a note that um, they think only three hours of face-to-face -face for graduate students is required, is that right? Now, I don't know that I've seen any guidance that gets down to how many hours it has to be. That part, uh, I, I'm just going to say I don't know, but I can certainly follow up. So if, if, if that's a, a specific student or a specific faculty member with that, class, uh, that question, uh, if, Lisa, if, if you've got a follow-up contact, we'll, we'll be glad to do that and, and uh, answer that as completely okay. as we can. Um, and here's a question. Uh, it's, it's sort of a continuity of um, decision-making and messaging, and that is um, the Western region is apparently having the regional 4-H course show while the other two regions have canceled. With increasing never, numbers of COVID across the state, how is it we're going to be able to ensure that um, the state livestock shows continue without becoming hot spots, particularly, you know, it's going to be very hot. It's going to be difficult for people to probably keep their masks on in those types of conditions. Yeah, great question. And, and really, we, we can talk about a 4-H uh, livestock show or horse show, but it, it could be any kind of meeting event or activity, too. So let's talk through that just a little bit. Uh, you know, we've, we've got the ability, we, and we've said we're, we're uh, comfortable offering meetings, events, and activities for 50 individuals or less, provided we follow all the guidance associated with conducting such a meeting, which includes social distancing and face masks and sanitation and a lot of, a lot of rules uh, to follow with regard to meals, if meals are a part of the event and so forth. So all of that is conditioned on we've got to offer these things in a safe way. I think in terms of the consistency part of that, so if one, one part of the state is, is doing such an event or activity and another part is not, well, it, we may be com uh, comparing, again, apples and oranges. The venues themselves could be different. The, uh, the number of participants might be different. The, the, uh, the lead up or preparation or, or uh, process may be very different. So I, I, I won't, I'm not actually going to be too surprised that we have, you know, different parts of the state maybe approaching things slightly differently, but it's because we, we're not identical all across the state. Our facilities differ, uh, even the way we conduct uh, some of our events and activities differs, and it may be manageable safely in one location and not at all manageable and safe in another location. So uh, we're, we're making sure that uh, if it's more than 50 uh, participants, uh, that needs to be approved as an exception to the policy that, that 50 or less is permitted. And I know I've been seeing a few of those already. One of the concerns I, I recognize is if you offer to do and, and conduct a meeting and 
you plan on less than 50, but more than 50 show up, you know, I, are we going to turn people away? And I don't think we should. But if we have a physical limit in terms of space, we may have to, or we may, may need to just plan for more just in case, ask for that exception, and then, uh, then you know, conduct ourselves accordingly uh, so that we make sure we're not a, a hot spot, if you will. Now, we can do all the right things and still have, uh, you know, a case occur. I'm, I'm not going to stick my head in the sand and say we'll never have a case. That would be pretty, uh, pretty ignorant on my part to say that. On the other hand, I'm not sure that we can, you know, each go to our house, close and lock our door and never come out again to remain 100% safe and still carry out our mission. Uh, so we got to hit the right balance there. Uh, and in some ways, I think the next few weeks, we'll gain some more experience uh, as we start to have maybe a few more uh, events and activities that do take place, but do so safely. And we'll learn from those. And that, that may well you know, determine what happens uh, beyond uh, those events and activities as well. And then finally, I've said once before, I know, uh, if things go horribly bad um, between now and, and any of those events occurring, I think there's very few reasons why we couldn't at the last minute say, gosh, it's not safe. We can't do this. So you know, let's not lock ourselves in and say we're doing this come heck or high water. Let, let's keep our eyes open, keep our ears open, watch uh, what's happening and make plans, but also uh, recognize if we need to uh, pull the plug that, that we do so uh, out of the sake of health and safety. Um, someone else has asked about what determines counties phasing back into these different phases. Who determines if a certain county does need to go to phase two or phase one, for example, because of the difference across the state? I think, again, we've, we've tried to approach that where we look at what county government's doing and we look at what the uh, extension guidance is, and then that's a conversation typically between the county director and the regional director. Uh, so I, I, that's my perspective of what's happening. I happen to see David Perrin on the screen here. David, uh, sorry you showed up on, on my first grid, but you want to comment on that? Dr. Cross, you answered that exactly how we've been doing it. And we've used the uh, phrase, not phase, but phrase, if we're not sure between those three entities, we call a friend. So we check uh, with, like for myself, I'm going to check with Mr. Stewart or Mr. Lamb. If between two or three of us, we're still not sure, we've been checking uh, with Dr. Sensman, what should we do? We knew that you described earlier about that alternative phase. We had some counties that were really being pressured by their county government to have more presence versus a phase zero. Those COVID counts did not allow for it as that system provided. So in those cases, we made provision to have uh, a very minimal staff in there and use that alternate knowing, as you described, if we needed to um, retreat at any moment, we can go back to zero. And if they're not comfortable, we can go back to zero. But yeah, we're having lots of conversations on a daily basis to go, to not to go, to stay, to, to come back. Hope that describes that well. Thank you, David. So I, I did just what you described. I reached out to a friend. I uh, appreciate the help on that one. <laughs> Great. Um, this is a question about uh, 
the governor eliminating races for state employees in higher education. And the question is, has this gone public? I believe that it has. Yeah, so unfortunately, boy, I'm just full of good news today. Um, we, we were, all of, of uh, state government employees and higher ed employees were originally in the budget for a uh, 2% uh, increase, uh, salary increase pool. And that was eliminated for all employees, uh, both state and, and higher education. So unfortunately, uh, again, uh, the bad news is we will not be having any salary increases this year. Uh, that would be either merit or across the board. Uh, the good news is we have committed for those who were up for promotions. We will continue to, to honor our promotion uh, increases just as we have in the past. And again, the other good news is we have not had any budget reductions. So uh, we're not looking at, at uh, any, any uh, changes uh, again in, in our travel or operating, those kinds of things. We want to be conservative. We want to uh, certainly be careful uh, with our budget because who knows what the future holds. But uh, in the short term, uh, we were very, very fortunate compared to most other universities uh, that we have not had any reductions. Well, the, the last question is, and I know we're not in the business of talking about uh, people's personal health, but because a public announcement was made on behalf of Dr. Burns, um, you've, we've had a couple questions asking, are you comfortable giving any sort of update on, on him? Just a little bit and, and partly because, you know, we, we've, we have tried to honor uh, a need for, for privacy and respect, but I do know that uh, Dr. Burns uh, is currently at Patricia Neal Center. Uh, so he's uh, been, been uh, discharged from the hospital, uh, undergoing treatment, obviously. And we certainly want to wish him, you know, good wishes and prayers uh, for swift and complete recovery. Great. Well, Tim, any other final remarks? Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> thank, uh, thank each of you again for being on today. And gosh, it seems like every week we've got more uncertainty uh, that, that we're dealing with. And I know that uh, makes it a real challenge uh, because you've got enough uncertainty in your life in your world without uncertainty around the workplace. Uh, but uh, as, as I watch, observe, and see things going on, you're doing a great job. Uh, and, you know, I feel like our institute on the whole is, is really uh, strongly positioned at this point. Uh, we've, we've been doing the right things. We've been taking the right actions. Uh, and that positions us to continue to serve people at a time they really need it, whether it's education in the classroom, whether it's uh, research in the lab or field, or whether it's veterinary clients uh, who have uh, animals that need care, extension programs going on. So thank you uh, for, for continuing with that. I know we've been working remotely for in many cases more than four months now. And the thought of coming back to the office is maybe a little scary, a little bit concerning. Uh, and it certainly, again, leads to that uncertainty about what's the future hold. Uh, I, I understand that, and, and if you feel like, gosh, I really have concerns about this, what I would encourage you to do is talk with us about those concerns. Uh, is it that you don't feel like there's enough protective equipment? Is it, is it related to sanitation, as we touched on earlier? Is it related to barriers and physical distancing? What, what is it that concerns you? Let us know so that we can work with you to address those concerns. 
Uh, I, we expect there will be some. That's that's not a surprise. What what we want is to work together then to work through those areas of concern and make sure you're in a place and you have a job where you can be safe, but you can uh, carry out your responsibilities. Again, on a maybe a rotating or partial basis, both uh, in the office and at home, uh, so that we can again uh, continue to move ahead uh, and advance the institute. I'm really, uh, really optimistic actually about moving ahead, but doing so safely. Maybe we're not going to move in this strict phased approach like we originally thought uh, and make these big jumps from one phase to another. I think it's going to be more nuanced. And I think we're going to have to look at, all right, what is it we need to provide? What is it we need to offer? And how do we best do that given where we're at? You know, we tried to project that in our phased plan, and, and again, I don't want to say that's out the window, but let's not lose sight of what the, the real purpose of that plan was, and that was how we could enhance and grow what we're doing over time, but do so safely. So uh, let's keep that in mind. And again, I, I believe we can do it. I, I think uh, we can do it, and we can do it safely. Uh, if we work together, and we take care of one another. So, and I know uh, many counties and communities are uh, establishing mask requirements. You know, we've been talking about wearing masks for a good long while now. I think, again, more and more, uh, I know this has become political, and I, I hate that because I try to be as, as unpolitical as possible. But uh, more and more, it seems like the simplest things can make the biggest difference, and I think that's one of them. So be a, be a trendsetter in your community. Uh, put on a mask and uh, let folks know you're being safe on their behalf. Again, it's not for you, it's for them. So let's take care of uh, those in our community, those in our office and, and coworkers and so forth, uh, and we'll beat this thing uh, eventually. We'll, we'll continue to watch uh, federal guidance, CDC guidance, state guidance, uh, university guidance uh, to the very best of our ability, make those gel together or come together in a way that makes sense on our campus and at our off-campus locations and do our best to stay in touch with you about that as well. But if you have questions, I hope you don't uh, at any time ever feel like you can't ask questions. Please uh, stay in touch with us. Let us know again what your concerns might be or what your questions are. I'm not sure we can always provide you a happy, rosy, positive answer, but I know we can be honest and I know we can you know, tell you where we're at and, and what our plans and, and intentions are, and then we'll, we'll work through it from there. And then finally, uh, you know, we're halfway through the summer. It seems like just not too long ago, it was about spring break time and here we are halfway through the summer. I hope you're also finding a little time to get away and to hopefully quit thinking about COVID-19 for a few minutes and, and uh, think more about family and friends and, uh, and other things that are also important in your life. Uh, as, as we uh, you know, get through the summer, uh, boy, before we know it, it'll be back to school and we're then back into another academic year. So you got a few more weeks, uh, take advantage of it as you can. Uh, and uh, take care of yourselves as well. That's really important uh, that you do that. So thank you again for what you do. Thank you, Lisa, for, for moderating once again, too. And thanks to Mike Stanley for always making our IT uh, tools work so smoothly. Well, thanks, Tim, for, for sharing all of your thoughts on a lot of these questions. So 
Hope everybody has a, a wonderful weekend. Take care.